A new data-driven tool developed by scientists determines the risk of COVID exposure at events, meetings, in your workplace, anywhere. We'll tell you how this tool analyzes different scenarios to manage risk next on this episode of Technology Today. We live with technology, science, engineering, and the results of innovative research every day. Now, let's understand it better. You're listening to the Technology Today podcast, presented by Southwest Research Institute. Transcripts and photos for this episode and all episodes are available at podcast.swri.org. Hello and welcome to Technology Today. I'm Lisa Pena. More than two years into the pandemic, scientists are working from all angles to keep the public safe. Scientists from SWRI's wholly owned subsidiary, Signature Science LLC in Austin, have developed the COVID-19 Exposure Assessment Tool, CEAT or SEAT. Signature Science President and CEO Brian Schimoller, who led the development of SEAT, and Director Dr. Molly Isbell, are here to tell us about this useful and innovative risk management tool. Our first guests from Signature Science on the podcast. Thanks for joining us, Brian and Molly. Thank you. It's good to be here. All right. So to start, um, will you give us a quick introduction to Signature Science? Uh, Tell us about it. Well, I, I can start, and Brian, if you want to chime in, um, Signature Science is a multidisciplinary scientific consulting and services company. Most of the work we do has something to do with signatures. That's where the name Signature Science comes from. has has to do with signatures associated with chemical or biological or other threats to homeland security, to military applications, to the public health. Um, the work we do includes developing and building chemical sensors. We provide quality assurance support and performance monitoring for major government sampling and analysis programs that detect biological and chemical threats. We perform DNA analysis, both for law enforcement applications um, and other government applications. And hand in glove with that is the, the development and the use of advanced bioinformatics tools to mine the, the DNA sequencing data. So that's just a variety of the kinds of work that we do. Um, related to chemical and um, biological signatures and threats. I'd like to also add that we've been a part of the Institute since the company was founded in 2001. And uh, both Molly and I uh, have been with Signature Science since its founding and we've worked uh, uh, with the Institute on on different programs as well, uh, either as a uh, subcontractor to the Institute or the Institute was subcontractor to us. All right. So, you know, closely work, you closely work with um, Southwest Research Institute on a number of projects. Um, But today we're talking about um, a signature science project, the COVID-19 Exposure Assessment Tool, CEAT. What is SEAT? How do you describe it? So SEAT is is an interactive tool um, that allows users to enter information about a scenario. Typically, it's when you're going to have people gathering together. It was really developed initially for use with with signature sciences. We were thinking about bringing people back into the workplace. So it allows users to enter information about the number of people that might be in a gathering, um, information about the venue. Is it outside? Is it inside? What's the size of the room? What's the ventilation of the room? How far apart are people going to be? How long is the event? And it takes all of that information and since synthesizes it together to come up with uh, an estimate of the exposure risk associated with that with that event. That's kind of the, the short answer about what, what SEED is. I'll add in that um, so that when we were um, first started to think about SEED and work on SEED, it came from wanting to um, 
ourselves understand the, the, the risks that our own employees would have uh, coming back into the workplace. So that was sort of the, the early uh, thought about is that let's develop something that we can use for ourselves to um, understand how to manage the risks for our employees, uh, whether they're uh, working in our laboratories or working in our uh, office spaces or meeting rooms. And how is risk presented with this tool? Does it um, spit out a percentage or how, how does a user um, see risk once everything's figured into the tool? Yeah, so it's actually it's actually a ratio uh, or, or a relative risk. Um, so so rather than being a percentage risk, really what we do is we we identified um, a scenario that OSHA had OSHA had described as being a high risk scenario. So this high risk scenario back in kind of the spring of 2020, OSHA said, you know, if you have two people sitting in a 10 by 10 foot room, sitting three feet apart, speaking for 15 minutes without mask, one of whom is known to have exposed, known to have COVID, the other one doesn't, that is a high risk scenario. And then what, what SEAT does is it calculates the the risk in a scenario that we define based on how many people are in the room, how big the room is, what the activity level, how long the activity is. It says, what's the exposure risk in this particular setting relative to that high risk setting? So it's, it's, it's really just a ratio. So if that ratio is equal to one, then we say that's exactly equal to this high risk scenario. So you're, you're high risk. If it's 10 or 100 or 1,000, then you're, you're jumping into the high to very high risk. If it's less than one, then we're saying that you're, you're less than that high risk scenario. So it's really a relative risk value that it gives. Okay, so the user ends up with a low to very high risk um, categorization once right. all that information is put in. Okay. So um, how does the tool calculate this risk? You touched on it a little bit, but you know, how would, how would someone use it? So I'll start with uh, with that one is the first thing we do uh, in doing the calculations is try to determine what the amount of the COVID material, we'll call it, it would be in, in the air, in the, in the space. And uh, so that that's really being being driven by the uh, ventilation rate in the space, the emission rate that could be happening from the from people in the space of COVID um, COVID particles or COVID uh, aerosols, and then um, and then the size of the space. So that, that that's the first thing we do is try to figure out how much material could be in the space. And then from there, we look at the effect of masks from two perspectives. One perspective is the um, effect of masks in, in halting uh, any emissions that might occur if someone's wearing a mask but is infected. And the other way we look at it is from the effect of someone wearing a mask and the mask protecting them from breathing in uh, the emissions of others. So... Uh, you know, we're two years, more than two years into the pandemic now. Um, do you feel like this tool is still useful or why do you feel it, it is needed at this point? It's interesting that, that um, as we've been developing this tool, you know, you have the sense as you're working on something like this over time is that, well, maybe maybe this isn't so useful anymore because maybe we've gotten to the point where um, in the pandemic where, you know, the pandemic might be behind us, but we are continually, in some cases, uh, surprised that this thing tends to hang on and still has relevancy 
uh, even today uh, within our workspaces, you know, we continue to to be concerned about uh, COVID uh, transmission. And like many other workplaces, you know, in uh, we we are seeing. Uh, some some cases not necessarily coming from our workplaces, but among our our employee population. Uh, so we are continually concerned about that and have used the tool to help us inform policies, even in the last few weeks here in our offices at Signature Science. Yeah. And one of the things that I think is pretty useful about the tool, even even still, is the fact that it. It allows you to take all these different factors into account kind of all at once, which is all is what everyone is trying to do intuitively anyway. It's the okay, well, there's been a, an increase in the, the the local community, or I'm starting to see more cases in my workplace, you know, or, or people in my workplace are you know becoming infected. How do I take that into account? How do I take that in, into account if I've only got three people in a room? How do I take that into account if I'm in a you know in a bigger size room or based on what the activities are or how long it's going to be? It's all those different factors play in together and affect each other. And that's one of the things that I find really useful about the tool is that it it pulls all of that together in a very systematic way to say, okay, now what's the overall risk taking all of that into account? Because sometimes it's really hard to sort through, you know, just in your just in your in your brain. The other thing I wanted to add is it is beyond um, beyond COVID, there are other respiratory viruses. And uh, even today in in our um, discussions uh, with our health and safety uh, team, we have uh, in a, a situation where a um, an employee has has a, a respiratory virus that isn't COVID, and you know ha by having this tool and having uh, thought through all the dynamics associated with the transmission of respiratory uh, viruses, you know we're, we're able to you know think um, you, you know apply the tools capability potentially to those those. Uh, those viruses as well, and uh, we're looking forward to you know finding opportunity to add new viruses uh, and uh, and uh, expand the tools uh, capability in that way. Okay, so it's flexible. Um, it's called the COVID nineteen assessment tool, but as you just mentioned, it can be used probably for flu, maybe a cold. If if uh, someone wanted to use it for that, is that what you're kind of uh, seeing for the future of the tool, expanding it to uh, different areas beyond COVID. That's Maybe. right. We, it would certainly need to be expanded. It do doesn't currently do that, uh, but it, it it a lot of the uh, underlying um, capability and and um, subparts of the tool would be would apply to other respiratory diseases too. All right. So you know we we've talked a little bit about um, how to use this tool in the workplace, but um, in what scenarios do you feel that it would be, it is most useful? So my, my perspective on using it is, is um, as a, as a planning tool is the way that um, it is most useful. And, and uh, one of the scenarios that, you know, we've seen in our own workplaces, we uh, have training uh, programs where we have uh, clients come in for training and, um, and we can use the tool to think through various mitigation strategies um, for you know those those training events. You know how can we keep both our employees and our clients um, protected as 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 best as we can with uh, being informed by the tool. So we can look at two different scenarios. One where you know, for example, we looked at um, scenarios where we move training uh, events into larger spaces. 
to see what the impact of that might be. We uh, um, we looked at scenarios where we limited the number of people in the training to see how that might affect uh, the risk, as well as adding masking and ventilation strategies. So we were able to sort of look at various options and decide which would be the most the most prudent option for us um, to take to uh, provide the, the service that our clients were looking for, as well as to do it safely. And what industries do you think would benefit most from this tool? Well, really, um, it, it, it can work across many, many industries. So anything from um, office, office work to um, educational scenarios, uh, we've even seen it used in uh, used uh, by NASA in, in their uh, trying to manage their workplace risks. There's, there's also a group that's using it, um, and I don't, I don't know the name of the group, but a group is using it to, um, to plan their choir practices. So there, there's some a choir director who's, yeah. who's conducting various choir rehearsals, and that's, you know, you know, that's obviously a scenario you're worried about. People are singing and breathing in close proximity, in proximity to each other, and I know that she's, she's used the tool um, to figure out sort of how to do that most safely, where to do it and for how long and how many people at one time. So, so if you're planning any kind of event, meeting, even just um, hanging out in the same room with a group of people, this this tool sounds like it can be useful for just about everyone. Um, you know, how accurate is it and how do you determine the accuracy of the tool? Yeah, that's kind of a, a complicated question to answer um, because I, the bottom line, it's sort of accuracy is simple. It says that if if you're in a high risk scenario, does the tool tell you you're in a high risk scenario? If you're in a low risk scenario, does it tell you you're in a low risk scenario? That's you know that's sort of the definition of of is it giving me an accurate answer? It's but it is complicated to to assess the accuracy because it's not like you can in like you can with a lot of other things, go out and conduct a controlled experiment to, you know, put people in a room and see if it turns out to be a higher low risk scenario. Um, one of the things that we did was to, um, you know, look at various publications. There's been a lot of different publications about different transmission events that have occurred. And we identified, I think it was 11 different transmission events where there was enough information in the publication for us to, to, plug the data into seat to say, okay, if we had been planning this event and known in advance the size of the room and the number of people that were going to be here and when it was happening and what the community, what the, the rate was in the community at the time, what would seat have told us? And in all 11 of those cases, it turns out that sure enough, seat said that you were in a high, in a high to very high risk scenario. And those were associated with transmission events. So that was, it's at least a demonstration that the tool is giving some reasonably accurate answers. That the flip side is a little harder um, and something we haven't, we're, we're still kind of looking at how to assess, which is the, what if you're in a low risk scenario? Because it's, no one's really publishing papers about low risk scenario. Like we had this event and we did these measures and no one got infected as a result of the event. That's not, we don't really quite have as much, you know, publications to, to work with. Um, so that's it's a, probably a little bit more anecdotal from the, the low risk scenario um, in terms of just kind of how the overall answer is giving. One of, one of the things we have done though is to look at different components of the tool. And this is probably getting a little bit more in the weeds and Brian might want to want to jump in a little bit on this too. But um, so, you know, one component of the tool really is taking into account um, sort of the air dispersion and how much might be circulating throughout the air in, in different scenarios. Um, and so there, there have been published papers where they do in a room measure 
CO2 in a room based on the size of the room and the, you know, the ceiling height and the numbers of people in the room and how long are the people in the room and they're measuring the, the CO2 it kind of as a, as a proxy for how much virus particles might be being emitted. And we have taken that portion of our model and compared it to some of those published studies to understand whether or not that portion of our model is giving accurate answers. Um, so, so we've been able to take different pieces of the model. Um, you know, same thing with you know masking. We look at the sort of what's been been published with respect to mask effectiveness, and then that feeds into the model. So, there's components of the model have been validated to be accurate. Um, it's that final answer is the the harder thing to do, except to use the the published events. Could this be an app one day for all of us to download and use? I mean, it sounds pretty user friendly. You just put in some data and you are given a load of very high risk scenarios. So uh, do you see it being an app? Certainly, we um, it is available now for anyone to download, number one, but it, it is not an app in the sense of it's operating on your phone or iPad. So uh, but it is uh, you can uh, you can use it uh, on your computer uh, by simply um, downloading it and and using the, the PDF uh, format of it. But in terms of developing an app, that is something that we are in the process of, of working on. And uh, we're looking for partnership opportunities to do that as well. And we're working with a, a, a several other organizations uh, to do that. So what we can do is we will make that available on the web page for this episode. Um, the where you can find the PDF. So what factors have you discovered um, are most effective in lowering risk? So that's really a, I think it's a, it depends answer. And it's actually a, one of the big reasons that we developed the tool to begin with, because it's really the combination of factors that I think affect the risk in a given scenario. And some of those factors are in your, in your control and sometimes they're not. Sometimes you can you can change the number of people or you can change the the venue you can move to a different to a bigger room you can you know reduce the amount of time sometimes you can't change those things and so it i think what drives what you're going to do in a given situation depends on what you can control and what you can't control um and that's again the whole reason seat was born is to to sort of take those factors into account to a systematic way to figure out what's optimal for your scenario um so i think all of the factors matter um, but the dials you turn in a given situation depend a lot on what it is you need to do and what your constraints are. Um, you know, the, obviously the, the rate in the population is a big driver, right? So as the, the, the incidence rate in the population increases, as we start to see these spikes, that has a big impact on what other mitigation measures you needed to put into play, or if you even need to put any mitigation measures into play at all. So that's, that's a pretty big one. Let's talk a little bit about the tool's flexibility. Um, you know, when those numbers change, the tool is able to change right along with those um, with those changes. Yes, and in fact, that's why we built that into the tool. And, I, and you know, this is actually another thing. As the tool, as the pandemic progressed, the tool also evolved, right? So when we first started developing the tool, vaccinations weren't available. But then suddenly vaccinations became available and we realized, hey, if, we're, if we don't put vaccination as a factor into this tool, we're not getting a very accurate answer. So we need to understand what the vaccination rate is in the population. We need to understand, is this a group that maybe if, if you're 100% vaccinated, that actually is going to change the, the risk of this particular group. So we had to, to build that in. We also had to build in 
um, testing protocol. So what if before an event you require everyone to be tested? How does that change, you know, change the answer? And that wasn't something that was available when we first developed the tool. Um, in addition, when we first developed the tool, it was just COVID-19. That was that was what it, what it was. Now we've had, you know, multiple variants since then, and we've had to then build that into the tool as well to say, okay, now if we're, you know, if it's the Omicron variant, how much more transmissible is that than the original, than the original um, variant? So we've had, we have had to sort of evolve the tool to accommodate these different changes as the, the pandemic has progressed and evolved. Um, and it, and yeah, we've, we've taken all that into account now. So, so Lisa, you were asking a few minutes ago about the, the, uh, factors that make the most difference, uh, yeah. in, in the, in the result. And, and one of the, th one of them, well, really two of them stand out in my mind is, is the effect of, of masking, uh, that makes a very big difference in the result, assuming that you're wearing, you know, you can, assuming that people are wearing, uh, good masks. So N95 masks that are, you know, being worn well, that makes a very big difference in the results and, you know, and the public health guidance, I think, you know, is, is, is consistent with that as well. The other one that makes a big difference is whether an event is indoor or outdoor. And that's sort of an intuitive result as well. And, you know, really the, the model is consistent. It shows that outdoor events are, are much, much, much lower risk than, uh, than indoor events. So have either of you used the tool um, to figure out if you're going to attend an event or a meeting or, or travel uh, to a location? Have you used it uh, personally to make a decision? I have used it for a couple of different events that I was going to go to. Um, and if anything, it was kind of more just to convince myself that sure enough, the way, you know, given the, the size of the room that we we're going to be in and the number of people that it, it really was safe. So I've, I've used it personally a little bit. Um, but more than that, I think probably the, the most that I've actually used it has been kind of more in the, in the workplace setting when we're talking about having yeah. a meeting in a room or, or something like that. But I have on a couple of occasions used it. I don't know, Brian, yeah. if, you've, if you've used it personally or not. So I've used it uh, with. Um, with. Uh, Two weddings that happened in my family, my son and my nephew both got married in, in uh, earlier this year in January and February. So I was running the model uh, for those events and uh, and it helped sort of inform uh, at least my own uh, behavior. And I used and I recommended uh, I show the results to my to my family and and. Uh, and uh, extended family and 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 suggested that they uh, take certain actions as well. Did, did they listen to you, Brian? In some cases. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a real world example of yeah. how the tool can be useful. So how did those events end up shaking out? Was there um, any um, COVID transmission that you know of? Uh, there was some COVID transmission in, in uh, one of the one of the events. And you wore your mask, so you were safe. Correct. And the tool helped you decide to do that. That's really cool. <laughs> That's great. Um, I, so I actually attended one event that I had run the tool ahead of time and kind of convinced mm -hmm. myself that it was, you know, this was going to be a relatively safe event, given that people were going to be reasonably well spaced and it was a huge room. And it was a few days later, one of, one of the women came back and said, hey, I just want you guys to know the next day I, you know, found out that I had COVID. 
and it turns out no one else in the room was infected. So I think she had it before wow. the event, yeah. and no one else was. And so it was, I felt kind of good about that, yeah. you know. I, so I think it's, it's pretty anecdotal, yeah. but yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. Real world examples of yeah. how it's working. Um, so what is the next step to um, getting seat out and in use? You know, we talked about the possibility of an app, but what does the future hold? Well, I mean, I think that that is what we're working on. We are working on a web-based version of the tool. Um, we're also working on a somewhat simplified user interface. We, when we developed it, we said we want to make this easy to use, and I think it is relatively easy to use for someone who's used to thinking about these kinds of things, who kind of understands the different factors. But it's also it can be intimidating. It's not something that my great aunt would use to plan the next family gathering, for example. She would look at that and say, "I don't know how to fill this in." Right? So, so or or you know, or even someone just kind of needing to make a faster decision. So we're we're looking at trying to make a somewhat a simplified user interface and make it available on the web, so it doesn't involve you know, having to download this PDF file. Um, and you know the yeah. So I that's probably the. I guess kind of the next the next steps and I think as Brian mentioned before the other thing that we're we're looking at is you know you know beyond covid can it be used for other respiratory or uh, you know, diseases that that are transmissible via respiratory routes um and I think that I think that we can it's going to take a little bit of work to to modify it for other other um diseases but I think it can be modified for that and I think that that would that would make it an even more useful tool kind of generally and we've also uh, partnered with the American Industrial Hygiene Association, and uh, and as part of that partnership, uh, we uh, we let them uh, uh, use the tool uh, for their uh, one of their uh, programs that they were doing with the CDC, and then uh, we're also looking to develop a more simple version of the tool that would be um, sort of have less. Uh, less styles and, and numbers to be entered that would be more easily used by a layperson, let's say, to, uh, to assess their exposure risks. So, you know, if we go back to the app or maybe it's a web page where you tick some boxes, um, but user-friendly, it sounds like, is the future for this uh, tool. Um, so when possible, we do like to get to know the people behind the science. And Brian, you have a background in meteorology and weather. So um, do you use that for your the work you're doing now with Signature Science? How does that come into play? Sure, um, I do. In fact, uh, my um, most of my work uh, at Signature Science has always involved um, the measurement of chemicals or other um, other threats uh, in in the atmosphere or air in general, whether indoor or outdoor. So, uh, to some degree, this this um, this um, sea project is is an outgrowth of that. And uh, my interest in meteorology, you know, has always been coupled with an interest in air pollution meteorology as well. So, uh, I'm uh, I'm the sort of person that's fascinated by by smoke plumes, for example. You know, I could just stare at those and, you know, and be mesmerized by them uh, and think about the the science and the engineering and the, you know, all the dynamics that are happening uh, when you see uh, a, a smoke plume uh, coming from, you know, uh, smokestack, uh, industrial stack. It doesn't matter. I sort of am fascinated by that and always have been and, and I've worked uh, on lots of uh, different projects that involve uh, both the modeling and measurement of air pollution. So I think next time I see a smoke plume, I'm going to look at it a little differently. 
Um, so Molly, you also have, you have a really cool hobby, um, that does have some parallels to your work tell us about it. So, so I, I love to, I love to sail. Um, I, I just enjoy sailing in general. I love being on the water with the wind in your face. It's just rejuvenating. And I sort of the purity of sailing where you're only using the wind and the sails to move. I mean, I, just, I love that feeling, but what I really love is sailboat racing. I do a lot of sailboat racing. Um, and there's, you know, when you're when you're racing, there's a lot of different things that you have you have to really focus. There's a lot of things you have to take into account. You know, you're some of these things are are physical, some are mental, some are within your control, some some aren't. You know, you're having it's the the boat handling and the maneuvering and trying to figure out the fastest way to get around the course. And you're taking into account the fact that the wind is always shifting and what it's doing right here is not necessarily what it's going to be doing later or what it's doing at a different point on the lake and trying to take all that into account and um, and all those factors into account. So there's at least a, a link there between the fact that you're having to think about and manage all these different factors to to move as quickly as you can. Um, you know, that's sort of similar to what we're doing with C. There's all these factors you have to take into account to make decisions. But the other thing I really love about sailboat racing is the, the teamwork aspect. You know, you've got your helms person, the person that's driving the boat, you've got someone else that's you're usually calling tactics, you've got someone that's trimming the jib, someone that's helping with the tacks and the jive. Some some people really, if we call them ballast, but they're they're helping to keep the, the boat balanced, which is actually pretty important when you're trying to make a, a boat go fast. And it's really, you know, one of the things that's that is really enjoyable about the, you know, racing on a team in a boat is you, you know, everyone knows their job, you trust each other to do the job, you also, you anticipate what's going to happen next. Um, you know enough about each other's jobs that when things go wrong, because they sometimes do, you know, you're able to, to step, step in and, um, and help each other. So that's, you know, that's, that's makes it really fun to sailboat race. I, I really feel like that at work a lot too. I feel like I work with really excellent people who are smart, they're competent, we all have our roles, we trust, trust each other to, to do our roles, we work well together. Sometimes things go wrong. Sometimes it's something in our control. Maybe we executed a maneuver badly, or we did made the wrong tactical decision. Sometimes it's outside of our control, but we always know, you know, really what we're aiming for, which is to do good science on behalf of our customers, and we're able to kind of come together as a team and, and work it out and get to the right solution. So, I, I, again, I feel like the there's at least that that connection between the work that I do and the, and the sailboat racing. So, so, uh, so on this seat project, uh, it was a team effort as well, where Molly and I were uh, chiefly involved in the development of the tool, but we work with uh, some other um, folks outside of signature science as well, that were uh, involved in helping us um, use the tool um, and apply it in certain cases, and then also uh, write a, a paper that uh, not only, you know, talked about the technical aspects of the tool, but its context in sort of the public health and epidemiology communities. So just wanted to recognize some of those other folks that worked on it. And uh, those included um, Nydia Trevero from the uh, National Institute of Health and uh, Afshin uh, Bichetti from uh, KBR NASA, and then also um, also, Sam Duta from the University of or Utah State University. So each of those uh, helped uh, work on the program, and then other folks were using the the the, the tool uh, at NASA. Uh, chiefly, um, Benjamin Heck, who used it at 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 NASA's um, Ames uh, Research Center. All right. So whether sailboat racing or developing the seat tool, it really is a team effort, and. It, 
Um, you know, your team uh, has done great work here. It's been great to learn a little bit about both of you. And of course, thank you so much for telling us about um, the SEAT tool. It's a great way to arm the public with knowledge. And I think we're all still trying to navigate um, gatherings during COVID. And this tool really takes this um, hard data and shines a light on the big picture. So I can't wait until it's an app. I will be one of the first to download it or go to the website and uh, click in those boxes to, to see how it works. So again, thank you for your time and for telling us all about it, Brian and Molly. All right, thank you. Thank you, it's been fun. And thank you to our listeners for learning along with us today. You can hear all of our Technology Today episodes and see photos and complete transcripts at podcast.swri.org. Remember to share our podcast and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Want to see what else we're up to? Connect with Southwest Research Institute on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Check out the Technology Today magazine at technologytoday.swri.org. And now is a great time to become an SWRI problem solver. Visit our career page at swri.jobs. Ian McKinney and Brian Ortiz are the podcast audio engineers and editors. I am producer and host Lisa Pena. Thanks for listening.